Tennis IQ Podcast. I'm Brian Lomax. And I'm Josh Berger. For today's episode, we're going to be talking about the 2022 U.S. Open Championships. And to get things started, I think we'll talk a little bit about uh, both finals, um, which Iga Swiatek beat Ons Jabor in the women's final. And in the men's final, Carlos Alcaraz beat Casper Ruud. Um, and I know we both have plenty to say about um, about the finalists, but also about some other players throughout the tournaments and how this all connects to um, sports psychology and the mental side of the game, because I think there's there's a lot there. And I think as a place to start, um, it, it's interesting how we've seen more and more how, and we could maybe start with the women's on, on the women's side here, but but both both finalists, Jabor and Sviantek, are both very open about their use of a sports psychology professional. They both have a sports psychology professional that they travel with full time. Um, we've also both, you know, seen the the strides that they've both taken in their games in recent years. I mean, they're, you know, obviously Sviantek is still very young. I believe she's 21. Um, and, you know, Sviantek over the years has talked a lot about, um, you know, her relationship with Daria Abramovic, the, uh, you know, her sports psychology professional who works with her full time. Um, but also Ans Jabor and how, um, you know, how she has worked uh, with a, a sports psychology professional and, you know, how that she's, she's opened up, I think, more recently, maybe within the last year or so, about how that's that's helped. I believe the, the woman's name, hopefully I pronounce this right. I think it's Melanie Millard or something, something, you know, hopefully the pronunciation is right there. But, um, you know, I, I think with her, maybe it's it's been more recent that, that she's open, opened up about it. But I, I think it, it also shows the, the the sort of butterfly effect or the effect that one player can make, especially when other players see the impact that it has. And that player reaches number one in the world. Um, but yeah, I, I think there, there are certainly plenty of themes that we could talk about as it relates to you know each of the finals as well. Maybe we start on the women's side, but I just wanted to make, make sure to add that in because I think it's it's something interesting about each of them. Yeah, and a few people actually called me or messaged me and said, hey, this is a really big day for your field uh, because I know that during the broadcast, at least in the United States, that was played up quite a bit, um, you know, that they both had mental performance coaches, sports psychology, professional, whatever you want to call them. Um, I see, you know, being around the Open a little bit more this week, uh, most most people seem to refer them to them as mental coaches, uh, out there, but whatever you call them, that's that's all fine. It's it is good to see that that's happening more, and that people are taking it more seriously. We've obviously talked about Iga and Daria a lot more on this on this podcast, and it's great that Ons is uh, is also using someone, and you can see the positive effect on her game this year. She's had a great year, and uh, you know she didn't win on Saturday, but. It's her second Grand Slam final. She's won some other tournaments. She's number two in the world now. She's inspiring, you know, young women, uh, certainly in her own country of Tunisia and probably a lot of other parts of Africa. So it's really fantastic to to see both of these players taking that aspect of their game very seriously. You know, everybody has challenges on that side, and if you can work with somebody who helps helps you manage that process, uh, all the better. Absolutely. So, you know, definitely great to see them both 
you know, t- taking the lead there and that, you know, that, that there's more awareness over, um, you know, the, the mental side of the game. And I think less, less stigma than, than certainly there used to be. Um, and, and I think if we were to talk about, you know, the, the finalists as well, I think with, um, with Jabor to start with, you know, it's, it's just very impressive how she has taken, continued to take strides in her game, you know, reaching her first Grand Slam final at Wimbledon and now follow, being able to follow that up with another final performance, which, as we know, can be very tough to do to be able to follow up uh, a performance like that. You know, you an athlete often has the target on their back, comes with a lot of expectations, can come with a lot more pressure. So to be able to follow up that performance with another final performance, but also just this year, we've really seen, you know, great strides in her game, both in terms of her ranking, her results. She, you know, she's always had the variety in her game, but I think is now coming up with better ways to maybe finish points, adding more, um, just more, more weapons, more options, rather than having to rely on, you know, the slice and the drop shot, maybe as much, you know, obviously those are still great weapons that she has, but I think she has a more well-rounded game. And then when it comes to Shviantek, um, who really has been, especially since the retirement of Ash Barty, has really been by far and away the top player on the WTA tour. Um, just seeing how, you know, even though these past few months she hasn't been at her best, I think actually since losing that that long, very long streak that she had of matches won, um, you know, it, it seemed to, yeah, since that point, those past few months, she's I think she's had a lot of ups and downs. Um, and also, I think went into to this tournament with concerns about the balls, how the men and the women use different types of uh, balls, uh, the the regular duty felt versus the extra duty felt. Um, but you know, it, it seemed that she was sort of throughout the tournament, she was doing a lot of tinkering, tinkering with her racket. Right? It seemed like maybe different types of tension with the strings. Um, you know, and and had a, a number of ups and downs. She was really on the brink against Sabalenka in the semifinals, um, but seemed to bring out her best stuff in that final overall against Jabor, even though the second set maybe, you know, had some ups and downs as well. Maybe her level dropped a bit. Um, she continued what is really a, a quite an impressive record of now 10 finals in a row, including their Grand Slam finals, but 10 finals in a row without dropping a set. So that's 10 matches, 20 sets in a row in her, in her in these 10 finals. So it's been really incredible and, you know, excited to see what she continues to do now that this is, you know, her third, her third grand slam, um, you know, her first, not her first grand slam, not on clay. And again, she's only 21. She's built a huge lead um, in the, in the rankings, I believe about over 5,000 points from uh, Anz Jabor at number two. So excited to see what, what she does from here. Yeah, and, and as you said, Josh, she wasn't playing great coming into this event. And um, there's a really good story on usopen.org um, that people could look at um, how Iga Sviantek went from doubtful to dominant during the 2022 U.S. Open title run. And um, one of the themes I like about that is you may not be coming into an event like this playing at your best level, but can you – you mentioned the tinkering piece. Can you just – really be working on your game to try to make it a little bit better and a little bit better. Don't look for perfection necessarily, but can you just get a little bit better each day in the tournament and through that process 
maybe you end up peaking as as I think Shriantek did. I think she played probably one of her better matches in the final. Certainly that first set uh, was, was quite good. So uh, I think that's something we all experience, you know, whether you're tournament players or you're maybe playing in some sort of team event, you may not even feel it at the beginning of the match, but can you just work through it? Can you keep your emotions under control enough and believe enough in yourself that you're going to find it uh, so that you can? And I think that's what we, we saw. You know, I was uh, down there a few days and, uh, you know, watching Sviantec practice. And, there, you know, a lot of different things. She's very intense in her her practices and very hardworking. Um, and I got to also see at the same time Francis Tiafo practicing in a little bit different environment. We'll talk about that uh, in a bit. But, um, you know, I, I like the way she came in a little bit, maybe not on top of her game, but decided we're going to get to work. We're going to go through that process. And if I do these things really well, day by day by day, that I'm giving myself a chance. And I think that's all you can really do in tennis is try to put yourself in a position where you have a chance to be successful. And, and that's true in a match as well. Uh, when you're getting deep into a match, have you, have you put yourself mentally and emotionally in a, uh, in a place where you have an opportunity to be, to be successful? So I think she did a really good job of that. And it's great to see now that she has won a tournament on, uh, on a hard court, not, not just clay. I agree with you that, um, you know, she's now really by far the best player out there. Um, that doesn't mean she'll never lose or anything like that. But when we look at consistency, uh, you know, how she's playing, um, there's not really that many, there aren't many people right now who can consistently challenge her, I think. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how the rest of the year goes and then into Australia. Think, you know, things could change. Um, but right now, I think Jabor, even though she's number two, this is an opinion. I think there's a gulf between the two players. Um, I do like what Jabor has done with her game. I think you, you mentioned all those options that she has, Josh. Um, sometimes players can have too many options. And what she has done, I think, is understand her variety and how to better use it make better decisions, have better discipline in her uh, shot selection. So I'm sure that that will continue. You know, talent-wise, feel-wise, she's right there with anybody. It's just a matter of her continuing to learn how to play the game better and better and better and harness uh, her strengths a bit more. Uh, so it was really great to see those two players and how they how they came to the final and, uh, and you know, created an, at least an interesting second set. I, I, absolutely. And I think that first set, you know, was not, was not Jabor's best, um, whether, you know, it was the moment that was getting to her or she had to, you know, sort of find her rhythm, which as we know, can be, a always a challenge at the start of a match, um, especially maybe a higher profile match or a big match. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think as, as we think about, um, Shviantek's performance, I think what's interesting about her, and obviously she's a, a pretty aggressive player, right? She's not the type of player that's that's just laying back, you know, playing consistently, sort of waiting for the game to come to them. Um, she is more the type of player that's really taking it to her opponent, being aggressive, and 
actually in that, that article that, that you mentioned, Brian, um, there was a, a quote from Sabalenka um, where talking about how in that, um, you know, in, in that third set, uh, you know, Sviantek was down 4-2 in the third set. And we'll talk about maybe some of the similarities with Alcaraz, who also saved a match point uh, earlier, you know, uh, sorry, uh, Sviantek didn't save a match point, but came back from the brink. Alcaraz saved, did save a match point against, against Sinner, but um, Sabalenka was just saying how, I'm um, talking about Iga, she was playing really, really good in the key moments. She was just going for it. She was hitting every ball and putting me under pressure. And again, this is coming from Sabalenka, who probably hits the ball as hard as anybody on, on the women's side, certainly. Um, and, um, you know, just the fact that even though she's down in that third set, even though there's, you know, high pressure moments, um, she's, she's going for it. She knows that her playing style, she plays best when she's aggressive and she goes for her shots and it matters most to be able to, to continue going forward and be able to execute when the, the match is on the line and that that's ultimately can be the difference maker. So I think it, you know, that, that quote demonstrates that, that she was able to continue going for her shots and, Give, gave herself a chance to be successful again, just because you, you know, you, you utilize your mental skills just because your strategy, you know, you're executing on your game plan in the way that you want to, in no way does this guarantee a result, right? She could, she could be going for her shots and not ultimately making them. But what it does is it gives you the best possible chance. And I think that's what we're, we're after. That's what, you know, that's all that, that you can really hope for. There's no, certainly no guarantees in a sport like tennis where there's somebody, the um, yeah, somebody on the other side of the net trying to make your life, you know, tough for that period of time and trying to, to stop whatever you're doing. But um, I think she continued, um, you know, playing her game both in that semifinal and in the final. And I think, you know, speaking of playing style, what Jabor has done really well and it continues to do well. And again, we talked about her building other parts of her game, but these sabotage tactics, she has a way of sabotaging, throwing off her opponent's rhythm, whether it's using the slice, the drop shot, whether it's using top spin on her forehand, um, you know, using her serve effectively, but she's able to throw off the opponent's rhythm. Where if we compare that maybe to like a Sabalenka, for instance, who plays with more power, on, on each shot, um, I, I think, you know, players can get into maybe more of a rhythm against that type of player um, where Jabor can really throw, you know, throw players off of their rhythm, sabotage them and, and uses that as an effective tactic. And I think, you know, when, when in that second set, when she was playing better, when actually I think for a period of time, she was the better player of the two of them during that second set. I think that's what was working and she, frustrated and threw Iga off from her best tennis through some of those sorts of tactics. Yeah, those are good things to keep in mind. I do feel like we should clarify what it means to go for it, because I think that can often be misconstrued as like you're going for lines. And it, it really doesn't mean that. Um, because even if you look at the Sabalenka quote, um, she was hitting every ball and putting me under pressure. So when we talk about going for it, it is hitting the ball with aggression and purpose, but still to very good, smart targets. It's probably more about depth than it is about lines. Um, and so the more that you're able to push somebody back and hit through the court, uh, the harder it is for that player to attack. And so that's something that 
Sabalenka is going to have more difficulty with is if she's being pushed back um, and, and feeling that depth and, and maybe with a little bit more pace. We also know that Sviantec creates quite a bit of rotation on the ball, similar almost to, to Nadal in a way. Um, and so, yeah, I just wanted to clarify that because sometimes people hear be aggressive be or go for it and they're thinking, oh, I'm going to go for the lines now. And there might be times where you get really hot and that works. But really, when we start going for lines, what you're doing is you're raising your risk factor, which then often means you're going to make more errors. Um, so she, uh, you know, I think Sviantec really here just started to increase the pace of her ball, the action on her ball, and really push push Sabalenka back a little bit. Um, so that's something I think people should keep in mind. Because um, I'm certainly not an advocate, I don't think you are, Josh, of, of going for lines. That's going to you know lead to more errors <laughs> than anything else, and you're just going to lose. So, um, you know, when you watch the pros, and I've actually assigned this as a um, – as a bit of homework to some of the players I work with to watch these matches and to think about a couple things. Number one is how many shots are going cross court versus down the line, especially when people are rallying. You'll notice that at the pro level, more shots go cross court than they do down the line. And then when they do go down the line, notice where the player is standing. Um, then the other thing I ask players to do is, is track exactly where each ball lands and you're going to be surprised at how many balls are landing um you know within the middle of the court or at least uh the middle third plus of the court they're not always right around the lines and um players are often surprised by that because i think we also live in like in a highlight culture where we see all these great shots on ESPN or Eurosport or whatever, and they're just amazing shots. They're near the lines, and we start to think, well, that's tennis, but it's really not. That's maybe 2% of, of what's actually happening out there. So when you, get, when you actually watch a match and notice how many shots are going cross, when players are changing direction, and where the balls actually land, it gives you an idea of what your target should be and what kinds of shots you can be making, you know, how you can bring some discipline to, to your own game. And I think, um, you know, a player like Sviantec is really good for watching that. She's, she's really smart about that. Um, I think, you know, Alcaraz, most of the men's players are really good about going cross court most of the time. So, uh, those are just some things as, you know, as people watch pro tennis, you know, look out for yeah, I, I think that makes sense. And I think, you know, I I definitely think it makes sense for young athletes in particular, maybe um, adult athletes, maybe who've been exposed to the sport later um, and maybe didn't grow up playing it as much. But um, I guess just competitors in general to be watching the best in the world do what they do. Yeah. Um, not that they're always doing everything perfectly. Not that they're always, not that they don't, you know, have flaws as it relates to the mental side of the game or other areas of the game. So they're certainly not perfect, but there's a reason why they're at the level that they are when, as we know, there's so many people trying to make it to the highest levels of the sport, whether it be other, you know, lower ranked players in the hundreds, two hundreds, five hundreds, 
you know, top college players, um, you know, all the, the people maybe that got injured and didn't make it, but so many people want to reach these top levels of the sport. And the reason why the top players are where they are more, you know, generally is because they, they do these things, right. They're making the right decisions. They're playing higher percentage and going cross court more often. And when they do choose to go down the line, they're able to step into the court and, and make it be a higher percentage play. Um, they tend to be the mentally tougher ones. They're, you know, in, in each of these elements of the game, they are, up, you know, above their competitors. They're so I, I think it's it's important to be able to watch and, and just pick a specific aspect of the game to pay attention to. I love that, that you talk to players about you know focusing on keeping the ball cross court and, and how and how um, some of the pros do that because I I agree that's definitely a higher percentage. I think another thing you can focus on when you're watching pro players is watching their feet, the footwork of players and just how their feet never stop moving. And then you compare that to any other level of tennis really. And, and the radical difference that's there. Um, or maybe you're focus, uh, focusing on how players spend their time in between points and how they try to reset systematically um, or how they're spending time during changeovers or whatever, you know, but picking one specific element and to really trying to learn from that. Yeah, obviously you're watching and you want to enjoy it, but also if you're trying to learn from it, if you're trying to, you know, view the match and really get something out of it, picking a specific area of the game can, can definitely be helpful. Yeah. And studying, studying the sport will make you, make you better. That's actually, uh, something, uh, Anders Ericsson, discovered in a lot of his research on elite performers, you know, and specifically uh, violinists and chess grandmasters that they, the people who reached the top of those two professions were the people who studied more of what they did. They not only practiced more, but they also studied more. And, uh, you know, maybe that can bring us a little bit more to the, to the men's side, because I think um, uh, maybe we could just, start with Francis Tiafo just because going on that theme and then we can get into the finalists um, you know the, he obviously had a, a wonderful tournament here he beat, beat Nadal um, had a great five set match with Alcaraz obviously very disappointed that he, he lost but this is certainly one of his best ever Grand Slam performances and Francis has always been a very talented player, um, but hadn't really put it together yet in terms of, um, you know, majors. And, uh, and here, uh, all of a sudden we saw, I think, to me, a level we haven't seen from him before. Fewer mistakes, um, more discipline in his shot selection, etc. And uh, one of the things I, I liked about um, something he said in the, his press conference is that he's um, he's enjoying the process of getting better more. He's investing more in that aspect of things, and so, so it's great to hear a guy who's been on the tour for a little bit say, you know, just kind of have this decision. All right, it's time to do this a little bit more. Time to take this more seriously, and and one way that he tried to demonstrate that he took it more seriously is that he didn't go out to dinner at all during the event. He just stayed in and rested. Um, and he recognized that to be successful in a two-week 
tournament uh, for the men, three out of five sets, one needs a lot of energy and rest. And uh, so I just wanted to recognize that. And, and I hope that the level that Francis achieved at this tournament is something that becomes his new level. Because very often we'll see a player get hot at a tournament and then then they more or less come back down to their their normal level. Um, and I, I hope that this will become his new level because I think the game could use another great player out there. And someone who's you know, he's pretty exciting. He's fast. He's got uh, some great shots when he's serving well. He's really tough. And, um, and he showed in this event that he can be a factor. Uh, so I don't know what your thoughts were on on uh, on Francis Tiafo, Josh. Yeah, great to see. Um, definitely, I mean, from from an American perspective, would be amazing to have you know another top American male player, which is obviously it's been quite a while. Well, I guess it depends how we define top, but um, you know we haven't had a American win a American man win a, a Grand Slam since Andy Roddick in two thousand three. So it's been nearly 20 years. So, um, you know, him reaching a semifinal, taking out Nadal, who had won two of the three grand, you know, grand slams at that point, um, was just a, a massive, massive victory. And then to follow that up in the following match against uh, Rublev, who's, you know, a, a top player as well, and beat, it, beat him in straight sets. Um, so, you know, certainly a, a, a fantastic performance. And, and not even to... To mention his the following match where he played Alcaraz, the, the eventual champion, who we'll certainly talk about, and you know have a five set battle against him. Um, and I think what what I've noticed from from Francis is more of the consistency, more of the. Um, I think it all starts from the mental game, but just his, the consistency in terms of his level. And I think um, where you know yes, maybe there are times where he played a better set or a worse set, but in general, didn't have as many of the ebbs and flows as maybe we've seen in the past. And he's even acknowledged that. I mean, I, there's a a quote from him where he was talking about his match against Nadal and, um, you know, talking about how, uh, here's the quote. He said, it's the, again, talking about Nadal, it's the mental capacity. Uh, Tiafo said self-appraisingly this week, Rafa is there every point. I've been known to have some dips in my games at times where it's like you're watching, what's that? That was my thing, match intensity. So I think, you know, it, it sounds like based on that quote, he's thinking about Nadal and how Nadal's there every point. And again, I think that's something Nadal is known for. And we can talk about some of the other top players, Djokovic, certainly. Um, Alcaraz, I think, is is getting to that point more. Uh, you know, I think that often can separate many of the top players from you know, the, the players that are ranked maybe between 20 and, and 50, let's just say, um, that they're there every point. Whether whatever happened that last point, they double faulted, they hit an unforced error, they're able to put that behind them and reset going into the next point. And I think with, with Francis in the past, we've seen him get really pumped, really pumped up, really rile up the crowd. Um, and I think that's great. I think there's certainly a place for that. I think that seemed to help him at times. But I think also, you know, he would have more of the lulls and have more of the downs where his consistency in his game would would suffer. And he wasn't able to bring that high level. And at the, the highest 
you know, at the highest level, the later rounds of the, you know, these top tournaments, you just can't afford to do that. You can't afford to be great and then be just okay for a period of time because the person on the other side of the net more often than not will capitalize on that. So I think what we saw from him was just a more, a little bit more subdued presence where yes, he was focused, he was intense, but he never seemed out of control where I think maybe in the past he has crossed over that line at, at times where maybe him right pumping himself up and pumping the crowd up has actually been a distracting force at times, perhaps yeah. um, where, where here it seemed like he was pumping himself up, pumping the crowd up as well. And it may be a slightly different way, but seemed very focused throughout. Yeah. It's funny how many players have pointed to Nadal's ability to play his best or bring his best effort on every point as uh, an inspiration for them to to change, and so I think it's great that that Francis uh, saw that and and wants to be playing at that level. So, yeah, let's hope that uh, you know what we saw from him here it becomes uh, the new thing for him, and it's great that he's he's done that. Um, with respect to the final, you know, obviously Carlos Alcaraz. We did an episode on him some months ago, uh, fairly soon after his victory in Madrid, in which he you know, ended up beating Nadal, Djokovic, and Zverev on the way to the title and, and um, you know, played, played amazing there, and really hasn't been quite the same since. Uh, you look at his results after that, um, not, not as good. And uh, you know, I think one of the things with Alcaraz, again, similar to Jabor, is you've got Lots of amazing shots and things that he can do. And sometimes his shot selection can go awry and allows opponents to hang around a little bit more than maybe he should and then makes himself vulnerable to, to losing. And um, you didn't come into the U.S. Open really on uh, doing so well at Montreal or Cincinnati. And, um, you know, his coach, Juan Carlos Ferrero, emphasized with him that he didn't seem to be, you know, experiencing the joy of the game in those previous hardcore tournaments and that that was something that needed to change for the U.S. Open. And he embraced that. He embraced bringing back some of the joy. And I think we saw that in his matches. There was less tension on his face and more smiling at times, which is something we definitely saw in Madrid. We such we saw much more of that smiling attitude, and you know maybe it was easy being in Spain, but um, we did see that. And you know, of course, he won in Miami, so he we know he has the ability to play well on hard courts. Um, and so for him, I think for me, the major themes were bringing that joy back because I think that's so important that we are out there enjoying what we're doing, even though it's a fighting sport. We have to learn to enjoy that process. And then I think the other thing, Josh, is that, and we may have said this in our our episode dedicated to to Carlos, was the his ability to let go of mistakes or lost points, and and be positive um, on that next point. Yeah, you know, I'll let you talk about you know what happened in that last game, but I think that that is a good indication you know what happened there. But um, that's the remarkable thing is that his his confidence and self-belief are not fragile. They are very strong and resilient. So a couple of mistakes or even a lost set, a bad set, is not going to shake his belief in his ability to win 
these matches. And that is, uh, that's something that is really special and is something that we see at the elite levels of the game and, and is difficult to learn to do. And, uh, but I think that, you know, when we're watching Alcaraz, that that's something to note is how he gets through mistakes and lost points so that his confidence and his mental toughness remain at a strong level and he continues to stay focused on um, the mission, which is is to win the match. Yeah, and I think as tennis players, think about that mission, uh, you know, which the whole point of being out there is to, to be able to defeat your opponent, right? And there's going to be ups and downs. We've talked about how, you know, over the course of time, tennis players win somewhere around 50% of points. Even the best in the world are somewhere around 55%. So you're going to win and lose a lot of points out there, but it's a matter of who can who can ultimately come out on top. And I think a great example of this, and thank you for bringing this up, Brian, is that is the last game of the match where Alcaraz was up two sets to one at this point, serving at 5-3, 30 love, two points away from uh, finishing off the match, winning winning the title. His first title, again, in taking number you know world number one, um, and he played a good point. was very in control of the point and had a pretty easy, relatively easy overhead and missed it. And I think Brian, you, you mentioned when we were talking before we started recording his, his technique just looked, you know, sort of awkward at that point. Um, and you know, I, I think this from the crowd, there was maybe some gasps or, you know, some surprise that, okay, he would miss that sort of overhead at a point like that. And is this going to lead to maybe a choke or maybe a collapse, right? But what was interesting was he went from 30 love to 30, 15, obviously from losing that point. But what happened the next point immediately after he hits an ACE right on the line, right down the T. So I think that's a great example of being able to put a point behind you and focus on the next one and, and say, okay, I, I lost that point. There's nothing I can do now. We need to be able to refocus. And and now what's important now is this next point, this, this point that's coming up. And he did that. And then, you know, very shortly after um, finished off the match. So, you know, kudos to him. And I think it definitely does show the, the importance of being able to reset, being able to put points behind you and you know, be able to put the inevitable mistakes behind you during a match they will happen but you can win despite them um and yeah as as you mentioned brian there's uh we have an episode uh i believe it's episode 83 that is devoted to carlos alcaraz really when he was really rising up the rankings um and uh yeah you know he's now the youngest ever atp number one um 19 years old uh, first time we've seen a, a teenager at number one on the men's side um, so, you know, certainly kudos to him will be, I think, you know, will not be his, his last, uh, grand slam title. I, I don't think, I think it'll be, you know, many, many more in the years to come. Um, but, uh, no, I, I think it, you know, it, you, you mentioned Juan Carlos Ferrero, who, you know, it has been a great coach and mentor to him. And I think what, what's interesting is, you know, Juan Carlos Ferrero said he had, he still has a long way to go. He thinks He's only at about 60% of his total capacity for how good he can get, for how well he can end up playing. So um, 
that'll be you know interesting to see. And I think for Casper Ruud, you know, certainly a great performance from him. Um, I remember, I think it was earlier this summer, I think maybe a, about a month ago or so, he was asked by a journalist in a press conference about um, playing on hard courts compared to playing on clay. Um, he, you know, reached the the Roland Garros final on clay as, you know, sort of traditionally been uh, more of a clay court player, was even playing 250s in, uh, in Europe and, and playing on clay for as long as possible. And I think that's been his preferred surface. So for him to reach a U.S. Open final on hard courts, get all the way up now to number two in the world, he even had a chance to get to number one, um, is very impressive. And I think with him, you know, he's sort of put his head down and systematically worked on his game, improved his ranking year by year, has not had as as much of a buzz around him compared to some of the other players, um, you know, guys like Alcaraz, guys like Medvedev and Sinner and Zverev and Sissipas. Um, but he's, I think he's, he's been very professional in his work ethic and he, I think conducts himself, uh, quite maturely on court. You definitely don't see a lot of outbursts from him. Um, I know he's been at the, the Nadal Academy now for, you know, sort of working with them for the past few years. Um, and, uh, no, I think he's the type of player that, um, again, not, doesn't have maybe the type of weapons as an Alcaraz. Um, as a Nadal or Djokovic or Medvedev, but do, you know doesn't make that many mistakes out there. I think they're you know with an, with one exception in in the match. We'll talk about that. Um, but in general, doesn't beat himself. Um, plays very solidly from both sides, serving and returning as well. And uh, I think we'll continue to be a top player. I think we'll be interesting to see if he can sort of get over that hump and win a Grand Slam now after having been in his second. Final the the first final against Nadal you know again facing Nadal in, uh, in a final at the French Open is never an easy task and especially when it's your first um, but I think in that situation he was more of a deer in headlights and certainly did not bring out his best where um, in the final at the U.S. Open um, I don't think he did that all that much wrong I think Alcaraz was ultimately the better player yeah I think the theme there is rude continuing to develop his self-belief uh this this event you know like you said josh you know the hard courts haven't necessarily been his thing either you know in cincinnati he lost uh, to the american ncaa champion ben shelton in, in, in straight sets um you know that didn't you wouldn't normally think of of that the number at the time the number five player in the world losing to uh you know the ncaa champion who just recently turned turned pro um, but yeah, I think he mentioned in Paris wasn't enough, wasn't really that much belief in playing Nadal, uh, in that particular final. Uh, although he did in the U S open, uh, this weekend, he still saw Alcaraz as the favorite. He noted that. So, um, yeah, he didn't do a lot wrong, but it's hard to know if the self-belief was where it needed to be. Yeah. I think we'd have to dive into that a little bit more with him um, because there were opportunities certainly in that third set to to take that third set and uh, I think it becomes a quite an interesting match if he does take that third set um, but he didn't and 
you're, I think it's a good contrast that you noted, Josh. He hasn't had the meteoric rise of Alcaraz. It's been a slow, steady progression, which I think is probably a little bit more normal for players. Um, and when that happens, it is different for all of us. You know, everybody has a different path to to their best tennis. And so for him, it's been more that slow, steady thing. I think you're right. He doesn't typically beat himself, which is great because I think a game that is uh, has that as your foundation will make you hard to beat. And uh, he has a nice slice backhand. He can do a, uh, he can do a lot of different things. And I'm sure that he's just going to get better and better. Um, you know, it's he's been out there a while. I think he's only what 23. So given that it looks like pros can go into their mid 30s, I think we're going to see Casper Root around for a while, and hopefully. Um, so, uh, it's very interesting how Spain and, and, and also the Nadal Academy are producing a lot of good players these days, you know, or, um, you know, people who are training there. So it's really, uh, there's some, some goodness really happening, uh, in that country and, and how they're training players and working on their character and helping them with their, their mental games. And so I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from what the Spanish are doing, what's happening at. Rafa's Academy, what Juan Carlos Ferrero is doing with Carlos Alcaraz. Uh, so um, that's that's what I'm seeing with Rude is the growing level of self-belief. And, and hopefully it gets to a point where let's say he makes the final in Australia, that it's at a point where he can go that next step and see himself as the better player. Uh, you know, that may sound arrogant in a way, but very often – in order to be successful at that elite level, you have to believe you're the better player. You still have to believe you can win, not that you will win. You don't want to see that as pressure, but you have to believe, yeah, I can win. I am, I'm the better player today. And I don't think he's done that yet. And um, again, we'd have to talk to him a little bit more about how he's experiencing this on the court. But it was an, it was an improvement certainly over Paris. Um, and there have been other great players who didn't win their first few Grand Slams. I mean, Andy Murray took a while. Yvonne Lendl uh, took a while. You know, he had. And, and, and who else? Agassi. Agassi. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so just because he's lost his first two, it doesn't mean that he won't win one at some point. So maybe something needs to change for him, but I'm, I'm sure it will over time. Absolutely. No, and I think, you know, he has seems to have the type of character and work ethic that that increase the the likelihood of, you know, him continuing to rise as a player. Um, so, so, you know, certainly kudos to him. Um, so I guess as we, you know, as we sort of move beyond the finals, the, the finalists and, and champions, um, are there other matches or other players that you think um you'd want to highlight or or any specific moments that maybe stood out to you hmm. no i mean i guess what i would say is uh because i was you know much more exposed to the junior draw this year than anything the what i would say is that the um the junior boy champion martin landaluce is someone people should keep on their radar in terms of uh, an up-and-coming player. He's only 16, 
Um, but great serve, great ground strokes. He, he really has it all. He also trains at the Rafael Nadal Academy. His father is, is quite a good senior player. Um, very calm and cool on the court. Doesn't really celebrate, doesn't get upset. Um, just goes about his business very, very well and uh, hits a big ball. Um, and all the other juniors really look to him as the player to beat. So uh, I just wanted to put that name out there as uh, someone people should look for in the, in the coming years, but also watch what, how he handles winning and losing of points. I think he's, he's really, really professional, very, very impressive. His game is very impressive, but just his, uh, his professionalism and the way he conducts himself is very impressive. That's no that that's that's definitely great to hear, and I think especially after um, you know winning the the boys uh, U.S. Open title, it'll be it'll be great to see you know that, that this can often be a sort of a launching pad. Um, so yeah, it'll be great to see you know if he um, plays you know pro tournaments from this point going forward, and or continues juniors, and, and you know just always interesting to see how some of those top juniors do um, you know over those those next next few years. Um, and I, I think, you know, as I sort of think of some of the other players, um, I think Nadal, you know, who obviously we've talked about a lot, um, in, in other episodes, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure was disappointed by the, the loss to Tiafo, um, hadn't had as much, um, in terms of, uh, tournament experience, you know, tournament experience really leading up to it, leading up to the U S open, he'd had. You know, the injury at Wimbledon, um, his his abdominal. Um, so I think that that's one, you know, it'll be interesting to see how he bounces back from this. I, I believe he was also having he's also having a son soon, um, which is exciting from a you know personal standpoint. Um, Nick Kyrgios reached um the quarterfinals. Um again, he reached the the finals of Wimbledon, so you know, continues his better results this year, and I think you know, better in certain ways, better um, composure, better mental game, though he certainly has his his unique uh, aspects to himself that seem to sabotage him and hold him back, such as, you know, getting mad at, at his his own player's box and umpires and, uh, you know, opponents at times. So, you know, he certainly, I think, has taken some strides, but also certainly has his long way to go. I think there's a, I think we could devote many episodes to him, but I think we'll probably choose not to. Um, but I'm sure he'll continue to come up for for various reasons. Um, so yes, you know, certainly an, an interesting, a very interesting tournament. Um, and I think uh, you know, I, on both on both sides with Shviantek with Alcaraz, um, they had an interesting exchange on Twitter actually, where they uh, Shviantek congratulated. Um, Alcaraz and Alcaraz, you know, quickly congratulated uh, her back, and I think you know this. This won't. I, if I had to guess, I don't think this will be the last uh, U.S. Open title for for either of them. So very excited to see uh, how each of them continues to uh, improve and continues to um, really get some some great results out there. Yeah, I guess we would also be remiss to not mention Serena Williams and this being her last tournament, um, and. The thing that I noticed about Serena, and perhaps it was because she had announced it 
and maybe it relieved a lot of the pressure for her, is that I thought it was some of her best tennis that we'd seen in, in, in some time. Uh, because it seemed like post, um, you know, coming back from, um, you know, pregnancy, that she, and you know, the 23 thing felt like it was a real weight on her. And I and it didn't seem like she had, was bringing um, her best tennis, maybe because of that, maybe other things. But it seemed like this tournament was a little bit more of a celebration of Serena. And what a champion she was. And I think she was really able to bring out her, her top level. Um, and, you know, she didn't obviously advance, um, you know, into the to the later stages of the tournament. Uh, but those, you know, first few nights that she played were clearly electric in in Arthur Ashe Stadium. And it was, a, you know, must-see t- uh, tennis. So, um, you know, I, I just wanted to point that out because that was obviously a big, big thing first week of the tournament. Yeah, de- definitely glad that you did. And I think, you know, I, I was more thinking about some of the, uh, I guess, fine final mat, the last few matches of the, the tournament, but no, absolutely. I mean, um, what an incredible career, obviously that, that she, that she's had. And, uh, you know, even with, with, uh, her matches, right. The, you know, I think that her second round match in particular, um, against Contavit, you know, taking out the number two seed, the number two player in the world, um, considering how little she's really played over the last year, considering, you know, some of the the challenges she's had over the last um, couple of years, just in terms of, you know, her health and everything. Um, extremely impressive and just shows that, um, you know, she's able to still bring out a, a really high level and uh, seems she's retiring, even though she doesn't <laughs> like that word retired and i think she's sort of avoiding using it um so we'll see i don't think any of us would be shocked if she no if she a comeback no i'm not yeah i wouldn't be be shocked at all so all right well that's our show for today thanks for listening to our u.s open recap for more on today's episode please check out the show notes if you have any feedback or questions for me and josh please email us at tennis podcast at gmail.com you can also use the twitter hashtag tennis iq Additionally, please subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice, including YouTube, so you can be notified of new episodes. You can also check us out on Instagram. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon in our next episode.